Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Brian Thatcher, and welcome to this podcast of Mercy Unbound. Today, I get to speak with Barry Schwartz. He was a well-known imaging specialist who was part of the STIRP, the Shrouded Terrain Research Project in the late 1970s. That they, that's the group that studied the shroud extensively, and uh, he thought it was just going to be a quick five-minute job, and they'd find out it was a painting, and he'd go home. But it has led him on a lifelong journey of trying to figure out about the shroud and its origins. He talks about the carbon-14 dating flaws, the theory of Dr. Stephen Mattingly, and it's a great show. I hope you enjoy it, share it, subscribe, and thank you for joining me today on Mercy Unbound. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Brian Thatcher, and welcome to Mercy Unbound. It's a series that aims to provide hope, an avenue for healing, and one that will help you understand and then live the great mercy of God. With me today, I have a fascinating guest. Um, Barry Schwartz is an expert on the Shroud of Turin. He was part of the uh, Shroud of Turin Research Project back in the 70s. Uh, he's a photographer. Uh, he's done all kinds of imaging work. Uh, he's traveled all over speaking on the shroud. Uh, I had a book in my old library. I had to pull out uh, the Turin Shroud, the illustrated evidence, Ian Wilson and Barry Schwartz. Uh, Mr. Schwartz has a fascinating website. You can learn so much and really uh, get excited about the shroud by going to shroud, S-H-R-O-U-D.com. Uh, and uh, Barry's going to help walk us through today some of the current thoughts on the shroud. Uh, Barry goes way back to the 70s. Um, you were raised in an Orthodox Jewish family, so it would seem to me a little unlikely that you'd be one working on something related to the Catholic Church and the Shroud of Trin. How do you get involved in all this? Well, I, it, back in the 70s, I operated a photographic studio uh, commercial photographic studio in Santa Barbara, California. And um, I did a lot of work for aerospace, for medical device manufacturers, something you'd be familiar with. And um, so I had a, a kind of a reputation as being a, a technical, technically oriented photographer. And I was contracted by one of our local companies that was a prime contractor to Los Alamos National Laboratories. And there was a seven month project that we did that had to do with atomic bombs. Uh, and basically what it was is they took old 35 millimeter motion picture films of above ground mushroom cloud atomic explosions. And because in those days they had these famous Cray computers that were amazing for their time, not as good as what's in your iPhone today, but, <laughs> but amazing at the time. And uh, they were able to, gather new data from these old unclassified motion picture films. So they needed somebody with a darkroom, with darkroom experience to create overlays and uh, kilometer scales and all kinds of stuff. Uh, and so basically that's all I can say about it. It was obviously classified, but we did that project for seven months and I worked with a guy named Don Devan. He was an imaging scientist from this local company in Santa Barbara. And, um, so we finished that project just a few weeks, maybe a month or so after we finished that project, um, I got the, a phone call from Don Devan again. And I, you know, when you're self-employed, 
that phone ringing is perhaps the next job, hopefully, prayerfully. And so Don called, he called me a second time and I'm thinking, aha, another job. And he said, well, not exactly. He said, um, what do you know about the Shroud of Turin? And I laughed. I said, but Don, I'm Jewish. And Don <laughs> laughed and said, so am I, remember? And he was one of the other Jewish members of our team. And so he explained to me that they had done some testing with a device called a VP8 image analyzer, which basically takes an image input with a black and white camera, and it displays it on a green screen monitor. And the device allows you to take the density, the lights and darks of the image, and stretch them into 3D vertical space proportionate to each other. A normal photograph gives you a jumbled, distorted mess. The shroud image gave you the natural relief of a human form. And that immediately told me there had to be some interaction between a cloth and the body for that to happen. That's not a, a technique or an effect that I could create photographically or artistically. So he said, look, they're going to put a team together. They need a photographer. Are you interested? And I said, no. Really? <laughs> yeah, because I, I didn't feel comfortable getting a Look, I was raised in a half Jewish, half Italian neighborhood. So half Catholics, half Jews. So there was never any issues in that respect. We all got along. We were like family. I mean, I mean, I always jokingly say that the only difference between a Jewish mother and an Italian mother is one says, eat, eat, and the other says, manja, manja. That's the <laughs> only difference. So, uh, so I, ne I never had that problem, but I was sort of concerned about getting involved in something. Look, I'm not a theologian. It's not my place. Uh, I walked away from Judaism at age 13, so I really wasn't well-versed even in my own religion, let alone anybody else's. So I said no at first, but then I thought about that image property and I realized that's unique. That's something that I'd never seen before, nor could I replicate if I wanted to. So at that point in time, and then candidly, I was also thinking, ah, free trip to Italy. <laughs> so I ultimately said yes and joined the team and became the official documenting photographer for the project. There was so much that needed to be done photographically. I mean, we were there to study the image and that was the purpose of the STIRP team which was to go and determine how the image formed if we could. So uh, because I was involved in that, I mean, I was qualified in that aspect. And uh, once he put me at ease and said, look, you know, this is not about religion, um, even though obviously this piece of cloth is a, a symbol of faith for a billion or so people. Um, but we were going to go there and do science. And I've often said that if religion had been brought up as a prerequisite for being involved in that team, most of those guys wouldn't have been there. Yeah. Um, there were atheists, there were agnostics, there were three Jewish guys, a Mormon, uh, one or two evangelicals, but definitely some atheists and agnostics as well. Remember, these are scientists that worked at weapons laboratories. Uh, so, you know, you can't expect them to be deep in their faith and designing nuclear weapons at the same time. It's kind of a... What did hard you to... expect to find back then before you got into it and versus what you found? Well, yeah, it's funny because I, I uh, frequently uh, in those early days 
uh, was stupid enough to say, well, you know, give us five minutes and we'll find the paint and the brush strokes and we'll come home because that's what I believed. I had no interest in anything beyond that, except that image, but it did, did have some interesting properties. And that's really what hooked me was knowing that there, there was some correlation between the density, the lights and darks of the image itself and the distance it was between the cloth and the body. And so um, that was one of the things that you had asked me about earlier was uh, to explain this three-dimensional property. And if, if I may, I'll just go ahead and tell you right now. So, so here's the thing. Um, many people have theorized that the image on the shroud is the direct contact image. Now, if that were true and the image were only made by direct contact, when you wrap the cloth around the face, you would get a very wide distorted image of the face. What we know about the shroud and what's proven on the shroud is the image was formed not just by direct contact, but by a distance of up to three and a half to four centimeters between the cloth and the body. So where the cloth touched the body, tip of the nose, top of the hands, the image is darkest. As the distance between the cloth and the body increased, for example, the hands on the torso lifted the cloth away from the body and around the hands of the man of the shroud, you can see a halo where there's less image because the distance increased. So folks like Steve Mattingly, who proposed a direct contact result, and I examined his original first images 20 years ago, wraparound distortion as one would expect from a direct contact image, and does not encode the spatial data because Bacteria cannot fly or jump up onto the cloth if there's any distance there. They're only by direct contact. So that really excludes his method as a possible method. And that's based on the properties of the image on the shroud itself. So as the distance increases, the image grows more faint until you reach three and a half, four centimeters, and it reaches extinction. No more image or imaging. What's, so, what's the common thought at this point in time you know, we're talking about, you were in the late 70s, so we're talking 45 years ago. What's the yeah. latest thought as to what caused it? Well, you know, the only correct and honest answer to that is we don't know. And you would think after 45 years and after the extensive in-depth examination that our team performed, that we could at least come up with some mechanism that might explain it. But we know of no mechanism, you know, you can come up with a mechanism and you get the chemistry right, but the physics are wrong. You come up with something where the physics is right and the chemistry is wrong. So the only honest answer, and I believe in being totally honest about this, is we really don't know with all the study that's gone into this. We've characterized what's on the cloth. Uh, we've documented that and that's published into peer-reviewed scientific journals of the first order, the highest quality journals, applied optics, places like that. But at the same time, we don't know of a mechanism to create an image with these chemical and physical properties, not yet anyway. But I've often said, and I'll say it now to you as well, that I am not prepared yet to discard the possibility of a natural explanation for this. We don't have enough data to exclude a natural explanation. Although of course, many people of faith say, look, this proof of the resurrection, that's all we need. And 
I can't argue with that. Maybe it is proof of the resurrection, but science can't answer that question. The scientific method, as I'm sure you know, doctor says, you can't use one unknown to prove another unknown. The mechanism of resurrection, nobody witnessed it. We don't know what happened there. And so you can't use that to explain the image formation mechanism of the shroud, which is also unknown. So I always say, look, there's a point where science stops. We've characterized what's there, but beyond that, we can't go. So if people of faith look at it and say, that's proof of the resurrection, I wouldn't argue with them. It's just that from a scientific point of view, that, that's not something science can say. Now, one of your earlier stumbling blocks was the red blood on the shroud. And I believe a Dr. Adler. Uh, yep. One of the, the third Jewish team member, by the okay. way. He helped sort this out for you. What, what was, tell us about that. Well, it's funny because this was 1995. So a long time, it was like 17 years after we finished. And I was still not convinced that this was authentic because no one had explained to me why the blood was still red or reddish, not, you know, crimson red, like fresh blood, but still old blood turns brown or black pretty quickly, usually maybe within a half an hour, even depending on uh, atmospheric temperatures and humidities and things like that. Um, and you're an MD, so you know about that better than I do. Um, so it, from my point of view, you know, looking at the red blood was a deal breaker. And it was from the first moment we saw the shroud. Vern Miller, who was chief scientific photographer on the team and a dear friend and colleague, um, Vern Miller and I were standing together looking at it. We were looking at a blood stain and we leaned over and we looked at it. We looked at each other and we both shook our heads. No, there's something wrong here because old blood, yeah, why is it still red? And so now 17 years later in 1995, I was pretty much convinced that the shroud was authentic, but that was my sort of sticking point. And I'm on the phone with Adler, who was quite a character in his own right. And I remember him, uh, and I'm saying to him, well, you know, Al, I, I still don't get it. And he said to me that he had pretty much come to accept the shroud was authentic. It's another Jewish guy. And I said, well, yeah, but what about the red blood? And he, he got upset with me. He said, didn't you read my paper 17 years ago? And I said, yeah, but you're a chemist. I'm an old hippie photographer, and I might not have understood what you wrote. And he said, well, look, he said, when I did the chemical analysis of the blood, he was a blood chemist, he said, I found a very high content of bilirubin. He said, now, bilirubin is a, like a hemolytic agent. It can break down the cell walls of the red blood cells, releasing the hemoglobin, which remained red forever. And I thought, oh, coming from the horse's mouth, there's the explanation I'd been looking for. But he was upset because apparently he'd said something to that effect in that paper, which I never grasped in the early days. So once he said that to me, that was sort of the last bit of evidence I needed. And then I realized that there was nothing left for me to argue about. And this has, had to be authentic. And it was funny because just literally within days of that conversation, a friend of mine called me and he said, you, you know that shroud thing you're involved with? And I kind of laughed. I said, yeah, I know that shroud thing I'm involved with. He said, well, you know, it turns out that's just a photo by Leonardo da Vinci. And I laughed because I thought he was joking. And he said, oh, no, no, I'm being serious. He said, I said, where are you getting your information? He said, well, my wife and I were checking out at the grocery store. And it was on one of the tabloids. 
And I had this epiphany at that moment. There was a manila folder on my desk. And I wrote four words, consider building a website. That was where the genesis of building shroud. Because I'd already been on the internet for about a year or more. And I saw this as a great opportunity to take all this stuff that I had collected and make it available. And so that was really what the genesis of the website was. And it all happened kind of right in 1995. And the website went online in January of 96. Fascinating. You know, help me out here a little bit because as a man of faith, I was certainly disappointed when the carbon 14 dating came out and said it was what an image from the uh, medieval ages. And uh, you're not the only one who was disappointed. You know, even men of science were disappointed because all the evidence pointed the other way. Here we are now, what, 40, 35 so years later. What is the current scientific shroud people saying about carbon 14 dating? Well, you know, it's maybe less important what shroud people are saying than the science that's been published in highly credible peer reviewed journals. Now, here's something. Perhaps in your experience as an MD, you did some research work and, you know, re researchers collect data, evaluate the data, write it into papers and submit it to peer reviewed journals. And also once you've completed your experiments and released your paper, you're then willing to release the raw data upon which you've based your conclusions. That's normal for 27 years. The British Museum and the three radiocarbon dating labs either refused or ignored all requests for the raw data. Mm. It wasn't until 2017 where a French researcher who also a shroud scholar also happens to be a, a legal student went to England and used the Freedom of Information Act and forced the British Museum, which was the caretaker of all the data, to finally release it. He then went and got some experts who can analyze the data, you know, statistically. And we found out a few things from the raw data and began to understand why they didn't want to release it in the first place. Because if you look at the raw data, you'll see that, you know, in any experiment, there are outliers. Those are that don't fit into what the majority are. Well, they got rid of a lot of outliers. And if they hadn't done that, they could have never reached their 95% uh, accuracy that they claimed. But more importantly, once we got their raw data, they, they cut a strip for the dating sample. That strip had one date at one end and a dramatically different date at the end of this three or four inch strip. And all along that strip was a gradient of dates. There was not one single date that matched at any other place on that cloth, which tells us that that particular sample could not provide an accurate date for anywhere else on that shroud. If it had been homogeneous, if it had been consistent, there would be nothing to complain about, but it wasn't. And so they sort of, I hate to say it, cooked the data a little bit to achieve a 95% certainty as they claimed, but the data itself shows that that sample was definitely not viable to date any place else on that cloth. Now, ironically, if they had even taken the time to look at the STIRP data, which they did not, you could see just in my white light photographs that showed that corner, 
that the area where that strip was removed is a different color than the adjacent part of the shroud. Why is it a different color? Ray Rogers, the chemist on our team from Los Alamos National Laboratory, did the chemistry on that, had some of that sample, did the chemistry, found uh, that there was cotton interwoven, which is forbidden by Jewish law, by the way. It's called mixing of the kinds. You don't do that, especially on a cloth for somebody of high stature. If you're a, a leper, who cares? But for somebody of high stature, it has to be pure linen raiments right out of the Old Testament. And so they, they took that piece of cloth, that, that sample, and basing it on that, came up with this nonsense about the shroud not being old enough. Now, there's plenty of evidence in the historical record that shows that this cloth existed well before the dates they gave. But, you know, I'm a photographer. I'm not a, a physicist, and I'm certainly not qualified to challenge three major radiocarbon dating labs. So we all just sat there kind of stunned, realizing something was wrong, but we didn't know what. In the last 20 years, well, maybe, yeah, since the last 20 years, at least five, if not six, peer-reviewed journal papers have been published indicating that the shroud, that the sampling that was done was wrong, and that the shroud is actually much older than the radiocarbon dating results indicated. So is it difficult? You know, shroud is a fake makes a great headline. Yeah. Uh, but shroud science, the minute you start talking about it, you know, people's eyes glaze over and they get, eh, that's enough. You don't want to hear that. And so it's very, been very difficult for those of us who have actually studied the shroud in depth to be able to show this evidence and be convincing about it when people sort of consider um, carbon dating is the holy grail of science, right. kind of like DNA has become. And sadly, I can understand what those guys were doing. They used the Shroud of Turin to promote radiocarbon dating around the world. And it worked. Yeah. Because to this day, if there's an article about radiocarbon dating, they always mention the fact that, oh, this is the technique that proved the Shroud of Turin was a fake. And so they used it to promote their science. And it's a multi-billion dollar year industry now. Yeah. So they succeeded in what they wanted to do. But it left those who look at the shroud as something more important than just a, an archaeological object. Uh, it left those people sort of wanting for a better explanation of why are they saying this when there's evidence that shows this thing ex existed long before the earliest date given by the dating guys. So those papers, by the way, are all available on shroud.com. And you can just write, type radiocarbon dating. And I always tell people, if you're coming to shroud.com, pack a lunch and a snack. You're going to be there a while. Yeah, yeah. But use the search engine. We have a search engine on the site now that only searches within our website. And that keeps it kind of keeps you on our site and gives you access to all this information. But from my point of view, the radiocarbon dating was correct for the sample they had, but the sample was where the problem lies. Look, we spent 17 months planning our experiments before we ever left to go to Turin. They stood over the shroud for an hour and a half arguing, where should we take the sample from for dating? That to me, that's just poor planning. And so- Let me jump you know, in on something that I, you know, hear occasionally people say, well, the 
carbon dating was wrong because of the uh, fire that the shroud was involved with. Well, that's not really true, accurate though either, is that, it? I, I don't think so. And, and here's the thing. I mean, Ray Rogers used to point out, hey, the, the areas on the shroud that have been charred by the 1532 fire where the patches have been sewn in, but that char, that was much easier to clean and carbon date than other areas of the cloth that hadn't been charred because it's carbonized and carbon, you know, you clean it. That's what they do. They take the sample and they destroy it. They burn it until it's a gas. And that's the gas that goes through their, their system to achieve a result that, upon which they base a date. It's quite a complicated process. And they have to apply an algorithm to their data to, to achieve a result. So I, I think that, uh, you know, I think that the three labs were kind of in a hurry I think that they saw this as a great opportunity to promote their science. And look, I'm pro-science. I've always been that way. But at the expense of what? In this case, uh, an object, you know, one of the things that I was proud of the STIRP team, even though we were there about the science, we recognized and respected that this is a piece of cloth that is significant to the faith of about a billion people. And it needs to be treated with that respect, no matter what the science says. And I think the STIRP team understood that better than most, uh, maybe more uh, later scholars who have come along uh, who are can just looking. Can I go back? Let's go 2000 years back now. Crucifixions were not uncommon. Correct. And, and yet I would think that if the body was taken out, the shroud would show characteristics of a body being moved with blood smudging the things or? Yeah, that, that, you know, I keep hearing that. And just recently on a, an online crowd uh, science group, um, that, that whole thing's been disputed because of clotting. Now you're an MD, you know how quickly blood can clot. Depends on temperature and humidity and all that other stuff. But often it's like really fast. 30 minutes and you've got, you know, the blood set up, clotted pretty well. And here's the other thing. What we see on the shroud does not accurately represent what that man looked like. This is not a photograph. This is a contact and beyond image. And so where there was direct contact is how the blood got onto the shroud by direct contact. Now, there's some debate over whether the body was washed. If the body was washed, it would re-wet those wounds and cause them to then perhaps get onto the cloth. But that's a debate because Jewish law says, you know, somebody tortured like that should, shouldn't wash the body, blah, blah. Here's the thing. If Mary was there, and I believe she was, just a Jewish mother, she's going to say at least wash the dirt off of him. Right. And so I believe that the body was washed. That's my personal opinion. It's debated still to this day, but that would mean that these are uh, blood exudates and not direct flows of blood. Although there's some of those on the shroud too, because an open wound, especially when the body's moved, I think you know this, would ooze some additional blood from an open wound. Right, and right. yet we have blood stains on the scourge wounds as well. And so I think that um, it's the combination of having wiped the body and the fact that these are blood exudates that we're seeing there. 
And so the smearing of the bloodstains, keep, people keep saying, oh, well, there's no proof that, you know, the blood didn't smear. So I don't think that's relevant. Okay. And I think now the blood experts that I've been reading their work just in these last few days uh, have come to the conclusion that, yeah, that's, that's not a relevant concept when it comes to the shroud, because how long was it from the time that his body was taken from the cross until he was put in the tomb, plenty of time for the blood to clot and make the transfer of it more difficult. Barry, as a Catholic, uh, our ministry is involved in the spreading of what we call the message of divine mercy. And understand uh, you've got it right behind you. Though. Right. The, the image of divine mercy is how Jesus appeared to St. Faustina back in the 1930s. You don't have to be a good Catholic to believe any of this. But there, you know, I do. And what I found interesting was that friends of mine 20 years ago, actually, they were given a large shroud image by John Jackson, and they superimposed those two images. They found it was a match. And then when well, they yeah, I've got a problem with that whole concept. And, and here's the problem. Although you and I can look at a, a thousand faces and see the subtle differences amongst them all. The structure of the human face is pretty much consistent from face to face to face. Two eyes, a nose, a mouth, cheekbones, hair, ears. And so I can take a photograph of you and superimpose it over the shroud. Because remember, we can scale an image up and down and, and you're gonna get a, a consistently similar result. So I don't put a lot of faith in that that comparison, and it's done countless times. It's done with the shroud. It's done with the divine mercy. It's done with, an, there's a young lady who's done artworks. They've done it with her artwork. I can't remember her name, but you probably know who I'm talking about, uh, who's a young girl who painted this beautiful portrait of Jesus from a vision that she had. And so they've done these comparisons, and yet I don't think it's a valid comparison um, because pretty much I can, I can superimpose just about any two front-facing faces and pretty much match everything up. So it's I, not like I, fingerprints. Yeah, it's no, different. I hear you on that. I can understand that and really understand what you're saying. Yeah, uh, structurally, our faces are pretty yeah. much the same. One thing that, though, intrigued me was, um, and, and I've been working on trying to get uh, who studied this over in Poland, but I was told that forensic pathologists looked at over 100 points on the shroud and the image, and they felt it was the same man. And I'm more familiar with, you know, when you have uh, deceased bodies and they try and recreate the, you know, points and right. create a sculpture of a person. But that's that's just an aside on that. I, I think they're right. More well, look, points of congruence are something that are used in forensics, primarily for fingerprint analysis, and that's because fingerprints are so complex far more complex than a human face. Um, and so points of congruence becomes an important aspect of fingerprint analysis. But the facial recognition, well, here's an example. Um, there's something called the Manapello image, which is an artwork. Uh, and a couple of, I think it was in France, uh, a French researcher took it to the police, the forensics department of the French or German police, and they applied facial recognition software. So they first put the shroud in and it's a human face. They put the manapello in there and rejected it, artwork, not a human face. 
So, I mean, that's just one test, but my eyes looked at the Manapello and said, it's not even a good artwork in my opinion, yeah. but it's one that's been promoted. Uh, I'm trying to remember his name, uh, just passed away a year or two ago, um, but a German priest, uh, Heinrich Pfeiffer. <coughs> Father Pfeiffer was a great promoter of the Manapello long after it had been cast aside by qualified researchers as just being an artwork. And if you look at the macro photography done of the Manapello, you can see the paint. So th these things come up all the time. And look, we all have computers. People can manipulate images in their phones now. Okay. And so just because you've got that capability and you superimpose one over the other, it doesn't mean you're actually doing real science. Right. And you know, I hate to put it to that, put it that way to people, but unless you control it, unless you have a baseline to begin with, unless you do it scientifically, you know, any two faces can be compared, I think. Right. And of course, the problem today is, which I think you alluded to very well, is um, science isn't the same science that I grew up with because it's, you know, if you go against certain societal views, you know, your paper may not get published and things. But let hey, me ask don't you mention the, Don't mention the shroud when submitting a paper to any journal. Yeah. Most journals will just reject it out of hand just because of the subject matter. Never mind the fact that the paper might be real qualified, good science. Right. So let me ask you, <laughs> and, um, uh, looking back over your life, how, how has the shroud impacted you? Well, when I was a young lad at age nine, I saw hypocrisy in my own faith. I won't go into long details, kind of a personal story about my mother and getting remarried and stuff like that. But it was, I saw this hypocrisy and I was offended by it at age nine. By the time I turned 13 and had my bar mitzvah, my grandparents lived with us. My parents both born in Poland, grandparents from Poland. So I promised him I'd do that and I did. The day after my bar mitzvah, I walked away from it and God was not a part of my life until I was in my fifties again. And the reason for that was I just went off and did other things and never thought about God. I know it's a kind of a terrible thing to say, but it's the truth. <clears throat> so coming back to the shroud, once I built the website and sort of became more public in my discussions of the shroud, people started asking me a new question. What do you believe? And they weren't talking about the shroud anymore they were inquiring about my faith and I didn't have an answer. I didn't know what I believed. I hadn't even thought about it. And in all fairness, <clears throat> I've been to a mass at the Holy Sepulcher at uh, Peter, the fisherman's house, sea of Galilee in Nazareth in Bethlehem. I mean, so, you know, I went to Israel but all my life. People said, you're a Jew. When are you going to go to Israel? And I always said, Hey, if God wants me in Israel, he'll arrange something who arranged it to Catholic priests, <laughs> story of my life. So when it comes to faith, I realize since I believe my job in the world of the shroud is simply be honest and tell the truth. That way, I don't have to remember what I said what? yesterday or the week before and just always tell the truth, it's easy. And so in, in looking at these requests that I was getting, well, what do you believe? What do you believe? They were talking about my faith and I didn't have an answer. So I realized that 
I was looking externally. I was, you know, going to masses and experiencing all these different things. None of it resonated with me, none of it. And so I sat myself down one day and I kind of remembered what Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within us, I believe, or words to that effect. And I said, well, maybe I've been looking in the wrong direction. And so I sat myself down and opened my mind and my heart and honestly looked within myself to figure out what I believed, because I didn't know what I believed. But I was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home. God was part of everything, every minute of every day. My grandfather got up every morning, put on the tefillin and the prayer shawl and did the morning prayers, lit the candles, two sets of dishes, two sets of silverware, followed all the, you know, the rules. And so God was something I, I always believed in God. Um, and so when I had that kind of epiphany, when I looked within myself, I realized that's where I found God. I was looking in the wrong direction the whole time. And when I looked within myself, there he was. So how many Jews can say it was the Shroud of Turin that brought them back to their faith? And in many respects, that's what happened. And so now I, you know, I am a believer in God, much to the chagrin of my Christian and evangelical and Catholic friends. I have not become a Messianic Jew or converted to Catholicism. Quick story, I was in a abbey at Richmond, Virginia, having a meal with a monk in 1999. And I, and I said, you know, people are talking to me a lot about uh, conversion. And this monk looked at me, said, but you're a Jew. And I said, yeah. He said, you're one of the chosen people. What would you convert to? He said, Jews don't have to convert. They only have to accept. Wow. That took a big hunk of pressure off me because I was feeling a little guilty because I'm maybe because I'm Jewish, I don't know. but I was feeling a little guilty about that feeling and and yet you know my beliefs are in a higher power in god i don't know if jesus was the messiah or not the messiah that's what many jews believe the messianic jews and i've spoken to messianic jewish communities uh, which is always kind of interesting you know for me to see somebody speaking yiddish and being catholic basically <laughs> which is cool and so it's been an experience for me. Of course, now I've spoken to every denomination, Coptics, to Muslims four years in a row. I've spoken to Muslims in England um, who believe the Shroud is authentic. This particular sect does. Um, and so I've been enlightened by my work on the Shroud as well. That, you know, I started off kind of just laughing at the whole thing and looking at it as a trip to Italy, you know. Right. And, uh, but it did alter the course of my life in ways that I could never have imagined. And people, I, people saying I, sh I should write a book. Well, I'm working on a book and usually I don't put a title on something until I've finished it. But I've been telling people the title long before I even started working on the book because I've been telling people this was not my idea. And that's the name of the book. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, Barry, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on Mercy Unbound. Hope to have you back in the future. People, uh, go to shroud.com. You can learn a lot. Um, there's a lot of unanswered questions, but uh, yeah. it's, it's an incredible piece of uh, material in the man in the shroud. And uh, Barry, thanks for enlightening us on your work and your faith journey. And uh, God bless everyone. Subscribe to the show, and we hope to see you next week on Mercy Unbound. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel for the video portion. The podcast can be heard at anchor.fm slash drbrian.1.
B-R-Y-A-N Thatcher, T-H-A-T-C-H-E-R, and on all the major podcast forums. I would love to speak at your church or conference, and please consider supporting our efforts to spread the truth to a hurting world. Thank you again. And for more information, go to the website at drbrianthatcher.com.